Please take your Bibles once again and turn with me to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2. We come to the end of Genesis chapter 2 this morning. We're going to actually preach more than one sermon on the verses that I'm going to be opening up this, e this afternoon, this morning I should say. But I want to back up and also read verses that we considered in our last sermon from Genesis chapter 2. Please follow along as I read beginning with verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to all the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Before we look at these words, let's pray for the help of Almighty God. Most blessed and glorious God, we do thank you for the ordinance of marriage that you instituted even in that time before sin entered into that world. And therefore we pray that as we see what marriage was like when everything was perfect, that you would help us to model our marriages after what we read and study here. We pray that as we are full of sin and we hurt each other as husbands and wives in so many different ways. We do pray that you would teach us through your word how to love one another, how to care for one another, how to minister to one another. And we plead with you and we cry out unto you that you would draw near to us by the power and the grace of your spirit to instruct us, to teach us during this hour. And not only us, but those that are sick, that are away from us this morning, we pray that you administer to them as well. We pray all these things in the precious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Marriages are hurting in America, even Christian marriages. A quick inspection of the marriage and family section of the typical local Christian bookstore, it reveals that modern Christians have a tremendous interest in the subject of marriage and of the family. Marriage is a booming business among Bible-believing Christians. But this booming business, the sale of books and conferences and seminars and podcasts and radio programs and marriage counseling, this booming business is really a sign of a disease rather than health. Douglas Wilson, he comments, in a very real sense, our interest in, is morbid, almost pathological. We are like a terminal cancer patient fervently researching alternative treatments, hoping against hope 
that something can be done. Desperate for happiness in our relationships and discontented with what God has given us, we are imploring the experts to show us the way out. Well, nothing reveals the tragic state of marriage in our country more than the troubling number of prominent pastors whose wives have left them. I'm not going to give names because I have no desire to tear down any brother in Christ. But to give you the picture, I want to just give you a sample of one famous preacher, most of whom you have heard, most of you have heard him perhaps on radio or perhaps seen him on television. He's a preacher that's very well known. He's been advertised as a modern-day prophet. He's not charismatic, but a very influential preacher. But to his wife, he was the husband that wasn't there. I've been a faithful and supportive wife to him, she writes in a letter to his church. Long ago, however, he, in effect, abandoned our marriage. He chose his priorities, and I have not been one of them. Well, like most men that wind up in divorce courts, I'm sure that early on, this preacher, he never thought it would have happened to him. And yet sometime before his divorce, he stated publicly, if my wife divorces me, I would resign immediately. But after his wife divorced him, he continued as a Christian superstar. Well, I don't have the heart to go over other details of the story. I don't have the heart either to go into the examples of any others, much less to mention any of their names or their churches. But in all too many cases, it's not just that a wife leaves a pastor, but it's a pastor sometimes, in, in different cases, that he gets tired of the wife he has, and yet he's a preacher, so he leaves her. And yet he goes on preaching. And in citing these instances, I don't want you to get the impression that there's no such thing as an innocent man whose spouse leaves him. I don't want to imply that there's never a place for a man to get back in the ministry, a faithful man is faithful to his wife, and yet he humbly confesses there were ways in which he was not the kind of husband that he ought to have been. But I'm simply saying this, we have a problem. If prominent pastors have failed to be the kind of examples that they should be in this area, the same problem exists in other homes. And for years, many in our society have been questioning even whether marriage is something that's worth trying at all. People have been asking, is it realistic and right to enforce a 50-year contract on a 20-year-old couple? A sign hanging in a jewelry store a window, I think it says it all. We rent wedding rings. And in a survey done by Pew Research Center a few years back, nearly 4 in 10 respondents said that marriage has become obsolete as an institution in America. But if the world has already surrendered on this issue, we must not surrender on this issue. And you and I, we have the scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. We have directives. We have a Savior that redeems us. And there are a few subjects that the Bible has more instructive and, and, and more help than, than, than on this subject, the subject of marriage. The Bible reveals its origin, its sacred intimacies, its holy joys, its wonderful purposes. 
It speaks of marriage as a union of the highest order, the most exalted, inviolable of all earthly relationships. It even goes so far as to compare marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. And even the way the Bible introduces this subject is exceedingly helpful. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, we have the account of the first wedding. This account is preceded by an account of the first woman, which was the subject of our study in our last sermon in this series. And because the first account, the account of the first woman, prepares the way for the account of the first marriage, I want to just review a little bit where we were as we went through those verses earlier on. The account begins with Adam's need for a counterpart in verses 18 to 20. And in these verses, we learn about Adam's incompleteness without a woman. And we also learn of the gracious heart of God in responding to that need. And in verse 18, it is God's observation. He sees a need. He says it's not good for the man to be alone. And then he resolves to do something about it. I will make him a helper comparable to him, he says. And the word that's translated helper, it doesn't mean I'm going to make him a slave to do whatever he wants. It means I will make him a helper. And the word is used most often, I think, in the Hebrew Old Testament to refer to God being our helper. And so it's not talking about some kind of a female slave that a man would have order around to do whatever he wants her to do. And in particular, verse 18 tells us that the woman was to be a helper comparable to him. As his matching opposite, Eve would supply what was lacking in Adam. And God declares that this help was on the way for one who would be both like him and one who would be different than him, who would complement him. And he he would have corresponding differences that would make him complete. Well, at first it was God alone that saw Adam's need for a counterpart. But the next thing God does is he awakens Adam to see the need himself. And so he brings him animals and birds that he might name them. And this shows the intelligence of man that he can sort things out, he can name things in an appropriate manner. But as he does this, Adam sees that there is no creature that's a counterpart to him. And upon discovering this, he begins to long for a companion like himself. And God's awareness program, therefore, was successful. Adam began to ache for a corresponding other. And God was preparing him to value the companion that he was about to give him. What a beautiful way to introduce the first marriage. Well, the account of Adam's deed for a counterpart is then followed by an account of God's provision of a woman. So verses 21 to 23. After God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, he took the rib out of Adam's side, and from that rib he made a woman. A woman with the same bone, the same flesh, as Adam puts it, the same DNA. And the symbolism of of the origin is profound. As Matthew Henry puts it, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So Eve was taken out of Adam that he might embrace her and love her as part of himself, as loving his own body, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, the finishing touch of Moses' account of the creation of the woman is given at the end of verse 22 when we read that after the Lord had fashioned the rib into a woman, he brought her to the man. 
And finally, after the account of the creation of the woman in verse 23, we read of the response of Adam, an outburst of astonishment. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. A Hebrew expression for flesh and blood. She is, she's a kinsman, as it were, to myself. It's used to express his oneness with her. Well, such was God's wonderful provision for Adam, a woman that would be his counterpart, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Well, now this morning, we move on from this account of the first woman to the account of the first marriage. And in a sense, it overlaps what we've already studied, but we want to focus especially this morning on the last two verses of the chapter. And as we read this account of the first marriage, Let's remember, this has the sanction of God himself. The cathedral in which this wedding took place is in the Garden of Eden. The clear blue sky is its canopy. The angels are its witnesses. God is the father that gives away the bride. And he brings the bride to the man. And not only does he give the bride away, he officiates at the wedding. Attending angels, their witnesses, and the morning stars, they sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This was the best wedding that ever happened, humanly speaking. But what we have studied so far is actually not only the account of the first woman, but also the account of the first marriage. And what we have now in these final two verses, which is our text this morning, is actually Moses' inspired comment on what has already taken place. It interprets what took place on the previous verses. Let's read again verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now notice... There are no quotation marks around these words, these last two verses. This indicates this wasn't something that Adam said. It isn't something that God said to Adam. There's no quotation marks. And also notice there's a mention of father and mother. Now, where did father and mother come into the picture? There's no father and mother, you see, so far. It obviously indicates Moses giving an interpretation that would, that would as it were, anticipate the future when there would be fathers and mothers. And there will be a relationship between fathers and mothers and the giving away of a bride and, and the like. And so this is God's inspired comment that he gives through his servant Moses who wrote the book of Genesis. And apparently these were words that were given by God as an expression of God's intention about marriage. As a guideline for all time. And this fact is reinforced by the fact that in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 5. Jesus quotes these words as the very word of God. And he quotes them as applicable in every age. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It wasn't something just given to the Jews that would be temporary for Israel. This was given to all mankind as an ordinance throughout history until the end of time. And contrary to modern thinking, as long as the earth shall last, marriage shall never be obsolete. Only in the new heavens, only in the new earth, only in the resurrection will the sons of God neither marry nor be given in marriage. Our Savior has taught us. 
Now, theologians, they call this passage a passage of primary reference. In other words, it is a foundational passage on which the rest of the Bible builds the doctrine of marriage. Now, if we want to grasp God's viewpoint about marriage, an understanding of these words, therefore, is essential. Now, as far as I know, there is only one statement about marriage that it is included four times in the Bible. And it's this statement here that we have at the end of Genesis chapter 2. It's here in Genesis 2, and then three other times in the New Testament where it is quoted. And so it's rightly been called God's all-time blueprint for marriage. And a blueprint is just as essential for a, significant, for a marriage as for a significant building project. And much of the unhappiness in marriage, it can go be traced right back to not following this blueprint that God has given. Now these verses can be summed up with four words, and I put them in the outlines there in your bulletins. And these are the four words, leaving, cleaving, weaving, and revealing. Now first of all, notice with me that in these words we have what we've labeled as leaving. Beginning of verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. In order for the new relationship between the bride and the groom to flourish, a cord needs to be cut. A cord between the children and their parents. Now in the Old Testament, the word translated forsake, the word used here, forsake the father and mother, it frequently describes Israel's rejection of her covenant relationship with God. It refers to a decisive break. They broke covenant. And special stress is made here on the husband leaving his parents. Only then will the man have full authority within the new family. Otherwise, you see, his, his parents will still be, as it were, pulling the strings in the new marriage. But in a new marriage, you see, it can also be undermined by the parents of the wife, not only the father. It's mentioned here, leaving his father and mother, but the wife also. There can be meddling of, of a mother-in-law in the decisions of the newlyweds. And so it's important that we're clear as to what this leaving means. It doesn't mean, for instance, that the young man and the woman, they need to abandon utterly, forsaking their parents, never talk to them anymore. It doesn't mean ignoring them. doesn't mean cutting, them, cutting themselves off from them. This would be a violation of the fifth commandment, of honoring our father and mother. It certainly would honor them to cut them off. And it doesn't mean that you have to move across the country to forsake them, to leave them. Living too close to one's parents sometimes can make it difficult for them not to be meddling in the newly forming marriage. But it's possible, you see, to leave them by li even living next door. And it's possible to move halfway across the country because of telephones and text messaging to, to not really leave them, to have still this relationship that is not started new. It's always dependent upon the old father and child or, or mother and child relationship. And so it's especially devastating for a marriage for either the young man or the young woman to always be running to the parents to find out what they think or what they should do. And then to have the spouse feel like, we well, always want to please your parents and not me. It's devastating to a marriage. Now, leaving your parents, it means that your relationship with them, therefore, it has to be radically changed. It means breaking the parent-child bond. It means severing the tight, emotionally dependent strings that once provided security 
and protection and direction. And it's hard to take those. This, this is why we cry in marriages. It's hard to, to give this up and to, as it were, recognize that a new relationship is developing. It means that you establish, if you were the young man and the young woman, you establish an adult relationship now with your parents. You cease to run to them for financial assistance. You cease to, to, to run to them for advice about everything. And of course, there are going to be times in which maybe there are ways in which you will interact with them and, and receive help from them. Um, probably it's a good idea sometimes for a bride to get some recipes, maybe, for instance. It might be a good idea for a young man to, to, to figure out how to fix something in his house. And so there, obviously, and we're not being absolute here, but you see, the relationship is different now. The, the young man and the young woman, they must not be first concerned about the opinions and desires of plans of parents, but first of all, the spouse. What will please her? And she would think, what will please him? What does he think? A new relationship is being established. It means, you see, making your spouse the primary human relationship. And this is sound counsel for parents just as much for the young people getting married. If, if you've given a child up in marriage, you need to release your child. And the question that the pastor asked you when you walked your, your daughter down the aisle, who gives this woman to be with this man? That was an empty question. That was a real question. It's about a real issue. Did you really give that child away? When you said, her mother and I, did you really mean it? And when your husband said, her mother and I, did you really recognize that he was representing you in, in making that statement? Well, the words to the folk song, Billy Boy, I think the old folk song, I think it contained some down-to-earth wisdom. And from the line that's in this little song, she's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. You might think that she's 12 or 13 or at most maybe 15 years old. But you'd be wrong. Listen to the little song, the little ditty. How old is she, Billy boy, Billy boy? How old is he, charming Billy? Three times six and four times seven. 28 and 11. She's a young thing and cannot leave her mother. Now, can you believe it? If you add all those numbers up, it's 85 years old. Now, I wonder how, may, how old that makes her, her, her mother. But all along, you see, because her ties to her mother have never been separated, Practically speaking, she's still a young thing that can't leave her mother. There hasn't been what is summed up here in the first word, our first point, leaving. And now notice with me our next word. It is cleaving. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Or as the older versions puts it, cleave unto his wife. Now, of course, there are two different ways in which the word cleave or cleaving can be used. Sometimes you can speak, for instance, of cleaving, you splitting wood, and you cleave it, a piece of wood that was once one, and you cleave it in two. But we're not using the word in that sense. Instead, we're using it in the older sense that's still used today of clinging to or sticking to or adhering to something. As the New King James translates it, the man must be joined to his wife. Or the English Standard, he must hold fast to his wife. Those are good translations. 
Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's used here, it's often used to describe maintaining a covenant relationship. The word cleaving is used in covenant context. In Deuteronomy 4.4, in contrast with those that broke their covenant relationship with God and followed Baal, Moses says, but you who held fast, there's the word, you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. So the, the parents, they were the ones that rebelled in the wilderness, but the true believers, they held fast to the Lord. Again in Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, and to him you shall hold fast. Or you shall cleave unto him. That's the idea of the word. And therefore, leaving father and mother and holding fast to one's wife, it means severing the loyalty of one and beginning another loyalty. And the matter is so serious that it's described in covenantal terms. Here in the Bible's first pronouncement on marriage, therefore, it's spoken of as a covenant, you see. It's not just an ad hoc arrangement. It's not just something that people figured out as they evolved societally, that this was a good way for us to have children so that they have stable homes to grow up in. And so we come up with this idea of marriage. No, this was God's arrangement. This was God's invention. In Malachi 2.14, the prophet reproves men that have been unfaithful. He says, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously and your wife by covenant. Proverbs 2.17 condemns the immoral woman who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Marriage is a covenant. And right here in Genesis chapter 2, there is this covenantal language to describe the first marriage. Now this concept is what's behind the old English word troth. Did you ever wonder what that word means? In a wedding, the expression we used hundreds of years ago, I plight my troth. You say, you scratch your head and say, well, plight my troth. I, I, I don't know what that means. Well, the word plight, it means to state or declare. It's used of a pledge. It's used of a promise. And troth was basically the old English spelling for truth. So to plight one's troth meant to make a solemn, true promise. And we get the English word betrothal from that word troth. And back then they spoke kind of funny, but they had an understanding of this principle, of the seriousness of marriage vows. And more importantly, the Bible declares that unfaithfulness to your wedding vows is breaking a solemn covenant. Now the solemnity of the marriage covenant, it's also on display in the public nature of wedding vows. Leaving and cleaving, it involves a public declaration in the sight of God. You see, marriage is not a private matter. It involves a declaration of intention and a solemn commitment to a relationship, and it's done in public. The, the modern idea of doing it all in private, going to a judge and, and just making the whole thing secret, as it were, this is antithetical to the biblical idea of marriage. Christian marriage involves a public covenant commitment before God. The people see it, the church sees it, the family sees it, the state sees it. This is the arrangement. Now in our day, many young couples, they seem to marry with the idea that if their marriage doesn't work out in their minds, there is this reservation until our problems get too great. The pastor says, you take this woman to be your wife, don't you know, forsake her for 
for richer or poorer, for sickness and health and so on, until death do you part. And in your mind you say, well, death till death do you part, or perhaps when problems get too big. And some people, they even suggest that marriage should be like a license that's renewed every year. And if it doesn't work out, you just don't renew the license. But this is entirely contrary to God's purpose. From the very beginning of creation, God makes it plain that he designed marriage to be permanent. So permanent that it's a solemn covenant. Now when two people get married, they make a solemn vow that they will be faithful to each other regardless of what happens. Wayne Mack in his wonderful little workbook on developing deep unity in marriage, he says this, the wife promises that she will be faithful even if the husband is afflicted with bulges, baldness, bunions, and bifocals. Boy, he's getting personal there. A little, that, little bit too much reality there. But those changes happen. Even if he loses his health, his wealth, his job, his charm, even if somebody more exciting comes along. And on the other hand, the husband promises to be faithful even if his wife loses her youthful beauty, even if she's not so neat and tidy, even if she nags at him, even if she doesn't satisfy his sexual desires, even if she spends money foolishly, even if she burns his pancakes, even if she isn't so much fun anymore, if she doesn't do much more because she, she's kind of falling apart. And all, if all those things are happening, you see, or some of them, you still love her and you still stick beside her because the real person is inside and you love that real person and you're devoted to that person. Well, so far, we've seen that marriage involves leaving and cleaving or clinging to or being joined to. But then in the third place is the word weaving. And this is expressed in the words at the end of verse 24. They shall become one flesh. And at its most elementary level, this refers to the physical intimacy of the marriage bed. And although one of the God-intended fruits of this physical union is the bearing of children, this isn't emphasized at this particular place. The emphasis here is on their union. The man and the woman, they're no longer two, but they are one in this way. And in a future study, we will, I think, make some comments about the implications this has to raising children alike and the role of fathers and mothers and the like. But at this point, the children are not in the picture. The whole point is the union between the man and the woman. And at this most basic level, this union is very physical. Within the bounds of marriage, the one flesh intimacy, it's spoken of as being holy and good and beautiful. And outside those boundaries, it's ugly, it's degrading, it's sinful. As Hebrews 13, 14 says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. But within the sacred bounds of this, of this institution, this is so far from being unclean that the book of Song of Solomon and Proverbs 5 celebrate this as being one of the highest joys of marriage. Now this is so much a part of the union that God intends that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of the husband fulfilling his duty to his wife and the wife rendering what is due to her husband. 
And he says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And therefore, he urges not, neither to deprive the other except for prayer and fasting. But the union that God intends in marriage is not just physical. It's not just the, the marriage act. It, it's a, that act is a symbol. It's a culmination of a deeper and more inclusive oneness. The oneness of totally giving yourself to the other. And the deep unity that I'm speaking about here, it's not just something that happens overnight. It takes work. It takes a lifetime of work to develop. It's a process. Two people with different backgrounds, different temperaments, different habits, different interests, different gifts, different educations, different parents, different upbringing, different wounds that they've had, different scars that are still there, different feelings that are still in their hearts. They don't leave all these things behind when they exchange their vows on their wedding day. The wedding day is just the beginning, you see, of the process of this union being established. This unity that God has in mind is not just some kind of a, of, of a uniformity. It's not that the man and the woman, they go to a marriage seminar and they listen to the marriage guru. There's all kinds of these gurus around the country. And they do all the things that the guru says and they nod their heads like everybody else does, like they're members of a cult. And they're all uni just united and every single thing is done exactly the same. The picture that's given here in Genesis 2 is of two persons that are very different who complement one another and complete each other. And it's not that when God brought Eve to Adam that she was to be just the female version of Adam. Instead, she's wonderfully unique. And the uniformity that, that oftentimes is, is thought of, it, it takes place when we speak about cookie-cutter cookies. You know, the good cookies that are homemade, they're kind of not shapely perfect. But it's the ones made in the factory. They're all looking the same. And we're not talking, you see, about the kind of uniformity that happens in Detroit where every Ford looks exactly like the one that was behind it and ahead of it on the assembly line. But the unity that God intends for marriage is a complementary type of unity. And this deeper unity, it occurs when the husband and the wife, they share everything. They share their bodies. They share their possessions. They share their thoughts with one another. They share their ideas with each other their abilities, their trials, their successes, their failures, their sufferings. They go through troubles together, and this binds them together. It happens when they consider themselves as a team in which each member brings different strengths to the, to the work, not just by competing with each other, but to, that together they might serve God and glorify him and advance his kingdom. And as they seek to serve God together, their perspectives, they grow more and more alike. And the unity that they seek, it comes by way of mutual acceptance. It comes by giving and by listening, forgiving, bearing with one another, by laughing, by weeping together. It's a unity that takes years to develop. And it comes about as the husband and wife, they seek to overcome communication barriers. It comes about more and more as they cultivate the kind of love that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that is a love that's patient, a love that's kind, and so forth. It's a unity that occurs when more and more each one surrenders his or her selfish inclinations for the sake of the other. As Peter Marshall wonderfully describes it, marriage is not a federation of two sovereign states. It is a union 
domestic, social, spiritual, physical. It is a fusion of two hearts, the union of two lives, the coming together of two tributaries, which after being joined in marriage, will flow in the same channel, in the same direction, carrying the same burdens of responsibility and obligation. This is what God has in mind, what we've summed up under this word of weaving, this being joined together, this being establishing this union together. And this brings us to the fourth element of marriage that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. And we've seen that marriage, as God designed it, it includes leaving and cleaving and weaving. And now in the fourth place, it includes revealing. And so we read in verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is a remarkable statement. Time is getting away from us, so I'm not going to be able to dwell upon this point because I want to make some, some practical points before we, before we wrap things up. But this is the climax of the account of the first marriage. It's, it's worth our attention. God says here through Moses that they were both naked, yet they felt no shame before each other. Now the word that's Translated ashamed expresses the idea of confusion and embarrassment that you have when something you didn't like, want to have discovered gets discovered. That's what it describes. It's the opposite of trusting somebody that they will know everything. It's, it indicates complete trust in one another. And of course the word naked it indicates that in the complete state of innocence they didn't need clothes. But the deeper significance is this. There was total transparency between them. They weren't hiding things from one another. They, the, the unity they enjoyed, it was a oneness in which there was no secrets, no hidden thoughts, no hidden feelings, no hidden acts. They're naked before each other, spiritually as well as physically. There's no hidden sins, no embarrassing deeds, no fears. There was complete openness and transparency between them. I think it's hard to conceive of anything that could describe the perfect oneness and unity of that first marriage better than this. Well, perhaps we can have time in another sermon to go over that some further. But what I want to do is I want to mention a few things by way of practical implications. And what I want to do is take one or two more sermons to flesh some of this out in a very practical way because we haven't preached about marriage in quite a while here in the church. And so we've come to this passage I think it's foundational. Mar our churches are built on good marriages, and so we want to spend a little time upon this subject. And the first thing I want to say by way of practical implication uh, this morning is that marriage has been designed by God. It's just a basic point. When you're tempted to get to solution with your marriage, and maybe even with marriage altogether, remember this. It wasn't a human invention. It wasn't a social custom that gradually prevailed. And of course, there are special customs, there are special ceremonies in different cultures. Different wedding ceremonies differ from one another. But the essence was here at the very beginning. And before sin entered the world, in the perfect pre-fall bliss of Eden, God instituted this blessed institution. This is a basic fact that we need to recognize. And he did this 
before the institutions of the state, the institutions of the church. God instituted this ordinance, this institution first. He saw it was not good for the man to be alone, and there was a need for companionship. And the one thing that was necessary to make Eden perfect was a woman that would complete and complement the man. And so God made her. He led her to that first man. He conducted the first wedding. And what he did on that occasion, it sets a precedent for all time. Just one of the three passages I mentioned to you that quote this in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And I want to read those verses. You can turn there if you wish. It's the occasion when when uh, the Pharisees that were always trying to trip Jesus up, they came and they asked Jesus whether it's lawful to divorce a wife for just any reason. There were different views about you could, whether you could divorce people, a, a woman for burning your pancakes, or did it have to be more serious than that? So there were different schools of thought in that. So he, they, they wanted to get Jesus' thoughts on the matter. And he answered and said to them, verse 4, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And those are words that Jesus adds by way of interpretation of the book of Genesis. Now Jesus appeals to what God did in the garden to establish the point that marriage was ordained of God. And human beings, they don't have the right to change it according to their desires. You Pharisees, you want to change everything with these divorce debates. But this wasn't the way God set it up to begin with. This is what Jesus is saying to them. The idea that marriage is just a human invention, it leaves the door open, you see, to suppose that at some point it might become obsolete. And it suggests that we could just change this institution to fit modern times. We're more advanced and more tolerant in our day. We don't, we don't think so primitively and so hard and, 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 and kind of ogreish like they did back then. we got better ways to think about it, so we could just change this whole thing. No, my friends. God instituted it in a state of perfection. We have no right to say, well, it's perfectly understandable that some people will just want to live together for a while and not get married. We don't have a right to change it to that. And we can't just make up the roles of men and women within the marriage. We can't just say that it's more pure, you see, to, to, to not get married at all and to be a monk. And that this is the way, the most holy way. And all kinds of sin has come out of that kind of a crazy idea. God saw that right at the very beginning, in the most perfect state, these are pure people, this man and this woman, that it was best that they be married, that they have one another. And of course, in a fallen world, God enables some to live as singles. And in some gospel endeavors, it would be hard to carry them out in a state of wedding, a marital wedding. But this point here, we need to establish in our hearts that marriage has been designed by God. And then secondly, marriage is to be monogamous. In other words, it's to be with just one woman, one man. God gave Adam one wife. Polygamy didn't enter the picture until Genesis chapter 4. 
And when it was introduced in Genesis chapter 4, it's by Lamech, or Lamech, a man that boasts over to his wives over the murders he just committed. And even though there were polygamous marriages that were tolerated in the Old Testament, I think this fits the whole issue of divorce, just as Moses, for the hardness of their hearts, allowed it for a while. But from the beginning, Jesus says, it was not so. From the beginning, polygamy was not in God's mind. And Moses, because of the hardness of their hearts, you see, allowed this to take place, and he bounded it. But the perfect plan, plan that we see in Genesis 2, it was not so. It was a plan of one woman marrying one man. And we know that polygamy is not God's choice because in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualification, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he is to be the husband of one wife and one wife only. The problem will come up, you see, in a polygamous society. Well, what if this woman, this man, he gets converted and he's got more than one wife? Is he, is he, is he, should he be an elder? And Paul makes it plain that this sets a bad example. And so he does not fill, fulfill the qualifications to be an elder in the church. Well, a number of years ago, the guest on a television talk show, he was known for being in romantic roles in various movies. Predictably, on this talk show, he was asked, well, what makes a great lover? And of course, everybody is watching to get his standard playboy type of response. And to the surprise of the host and the audience, his answer was something like this. A great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman all her life long. And who can be satisfied by one woman all his life long. A great lover is not someone who goes from woman to woman to woman. Any dog can do that. Wow. Good theology there. Good biblical. I hope this guy had some other biblical moorings. But whatever the case is, would to God that this was the thinking you see of Hollywood entertainers today. Instead, there's a war on marriage. There seems to be no relief in sight in this war. It's waged in the press. It's waged in the movies. It's waged in the lecture circuits and campuses in books. There's a war against it. And hardly a week goes by without hearing that marriage represses and degrades women. It's grown obsolete. And the way of fulfillment you see is to replace partners whenever one of you no longer is excited with the relationship. Young people, don't be deceived. You will be tempted to, to embrace this, this lie, this modern idea of, of romantic relationships. Don't buy this law, this lie. Before sin ever entered into the world, young person, marriage was blessed. It was the perfect thing that God ordained. It's after sin entered the, the world that everything got messed up and marriages became hard. But it's still God's plan. And dear brother, dear sister, Satan will tempt you into thinking that you've been trapped in a bad marriage. And you're never going to get out of this bad marriage. And therefore you've got to try something different. It's a lie, my sister. It's a lie, dear brother. Don't buy his lie. Mark it down. Satan's deception would lead you to untold sorrow. And if God didn't rescue you, those forbidden pleasures would lead you to that awful place where there is nothing but misery forever. 
Well, there's two more things. I'm not going to get to all six that are there in your outlines. Uh, the third thing I want to just note is that marriage is to be heterosexual. It's not between people of the same sex. In the beginning, the arrangement that God ordained and blessed was between Adam and Eve. It wasn't between Adam and Steve. It was not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. But I don't need to say anything more about that. It's very plain here what we read in the text. I do want to come, though, to one final word of application. Marriage is a binding commitment. As we stressed earlier, it is a solemn covenant made in the presence of God and in other witnesses. It's not a private agreement that can just be rescinded at will. And the only cases in which God permits the marriage to be severed are cases in which it's basically already been severed. The unfaithful person has severed it, or the unbeliever has severed it by leaving. And therefore, if you're married, remember this. You've made a vow to be faithful until death parts you, until your spouse parts you. And therefore, you must never allow this word divorce to enter into your discussions. Don't even let the idea start to be entertained in your mind. Marriage is built upon more than just romantic feelings. It's built on more, you see, than the little flutter that you first got years ago. Faithfulness to your vow to one another means that even when the flame of romance seems to be no more than an ember that's now covered with ashes, you cling to God's plan and you cling to the vows that you made and you determine in your heart, I will not stop being faithful to the one that God has given to me. The same God that raises the dead can resurrect your marriage. And God would have you walk by faith and not by sight. And he would have you determine that having committed yourself to fulfilling your vows and to the way that God says is right, you will never, ever surrender. During England's darkest days, the late 1930s and the early 1940s, it was a pudgy, cigar-smoking, unimpressive-looking man that held the country together. And while other voices were shouting surrender, Sir Will Winston Churchill, he stood fast. Bombs devastated whole swaths of London. You can see pictures of it. There's almost nothing standing anymore. It was decimated. Buildings had crumbled. Bridges had fallen. But the stubborn prime minister refused to budge. And never once did he consider capitulating and negotiating with the Nazis. And in his famous speech before the House of Commons on June 4th, 1940, he wrapped up his words with these words. We shall not flag nor fail. We shall, not, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France and on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on beaches, landing grounds, in fields, in streets, and on the hills. We shall never surrender. Well, surrendering is not an option if you want to win a war. If you want to succeed in a marriage, surrendering is not an option. And especially we that know God, we can do what's impossible to men. 
We can get ourselves through a difficult patch. We can find grace with God to love that one that's become difficult to love. We must never surrender. Now, some marriages that have been ready to die, they've been marvelously resurrected. And where there's little to none of the, the unity that's pictured here in Genesis chapter 2, God is able to rekindle love, to rekindle unity. And in our next sermon, we're going to look on some ways in which we can cultivate this kind of unity between a man and a woman. But meanwhile, in the face of all the enemies against marriage, the foul, foul fiend from hell, the one that foments hatred, the one that foments wars and marital strife, stubbornly say to him, my friend, by God's grace, I will not surrender. Let's pray. Father, we confess that all too often our flesh wants the easy way out and we have difficulties that we confront. But we do thank you that your grace is all sufficient. It is able to sustain us and enable us to persevere in the vows that we have made. And we do thank you and bless you that in many of our cases you have given unto us those that we sense we don't even deserve, that in many ways are easy to love. We thank you for the delightful marriages that many of us enjoy. And yet at the same time, we all confess that we have many times sinned against you. We have many times failed our spouses. We have failed to be the kind of one-hearted companion, a completing companion that we see here in Genesis chapter 2. Help us, Lord, to, to more and more arrive at that ideal that you've set before us. And we do thank you that even though we are unfaithful, you are never unfaithful. We do thank you and bless you that you persevere in your determination to save us from, from the destruction, to save us from our sins. Oh Lord, we plead with you that you would indeed persevere with us, sustaining us, enabling us also to persevere in our commitments to follow you, to follow your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.